You're listening to Yap, Young and Profiting Podcast, a place where you can listen, learn, and profit. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Hala Taha, and on Young and Profiting Podcast, we investigate a new topic each week and interview some of the brightest minds in the world. My goal is to turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your everyday life, no matter your age, profession, or industry. There's no fluff on this podcast, and that's on purpose. I'm here to uncover value from my guests by doing the proper research and asking the right questions. If you're new to the show, we've chatted with the likes of ex-FBI agents, real estate moguls, self-made billionaires, CEOs, and best-selling authors. Our subject matter ranges from enhancing productivity, how to gain influence, the art of entrepreneurship, and more. If you're smart and like to continually improve yourself, hit the subscribe button because you'll love it here at Young and Profiting Podcast. This week on Yap, we're chatting with Olivia Fox Cabane, a best-selling author, public speaker, and co-founder. Olivia is super well-known for her breakout book, The Charisma Myth, which I used to be obsessed with back in 2012, 2013, and I must have listened to it about five times. It's so funny how I went from listening to her and idolizing her to now interviewing her and texting her frequently. That's the power of podcasting. In fact, this is the first interview Olivia has taken in two years, and she says it's the last one she's going to take until her new book, The Genius Myth, comes out in 2022. I feel so honored to have this opportunity. Olivia has taught leadership, innovation, genius, and charisma at Harvard, Yale, MIT, and the United Nations. She previously worked as a columnist for Forbes and the Huffington Post and has been featured in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. These days, Olivia spends her time working on saving the world, and she's a thought leader on climate and environmental sustainability, alternative protein, and impact investing within the food industry. She's also the current chair of the International Alliance for Alternative Protein and the co-founder of KindEarth.Tech. In our conversation, we actually won't talk much about charisma, and you'll find out why in the episode. Instead, we'll discuss about an exciting new space full of opportunity, the alternative meat industry and cellular agriculture. We'll also talk more about Olivia's definition of meat, the issues this new industry faces when it comes to scaling to the masses, and so much more. Hey, Olivia, welcome to Young and Profiting Podcast. Thanks. It's such a pleasure to be here. I am so excited to talk with you. Uh, To give my listeners some background, I've been trying to interview Olivia for over two years. I was a huge fan of her book, The Charisma Myth, which came out in 2012. It was like the biggest book of the year. Everybody read that book if you're into self-improvement. She became super famous for that. She had a huge TED Talk. I feel like it was one of the most popular TED Talks ever. And I've been trying to interview her since then. And, you know, it's been a lot of back and forth. And then finally, I've been able to get Olivia on the line. I'm so excited, but we're not talking about charisma. We're not going to be talking about charisma at all. Maybe my last question might be on charisma. We're going to be talking about the alternative meat industry. And it's very exciting. The future of food, you are really like, you know, leading the forefront. You're one of the main players right now. So definitely want to pick your brain on that. But first, I want to understand how you went from best-selling author all about charisma to alternative meat, you know, leadership. How did, how did that happen? I think it really stems from the fact that, as I now know, and I learned this maybe two years ago, I have Asperger's, 
which if only I'd known 30 bloody years ago, my life would have been so much easier. But what this means for me is that I grew up in Paris, half French, half American, half Jewish, half Protestant, all wrong for Paris, trust me on that. And um, A, I didn't fit in, but B, I've always been kind of like obsessively drawn to reduce the suffering of others. And it was just a matter of what was the biggest suffering I knew at the time. So when I was a kid, that was animal testing. So that's what I was working against. Then I learned about uh, child sex trafficking. And so that was my focus for a couple of years. Uh, then I discovered genocide. So guess where I was focusing on then? That was, it was at the worst of Darfur. And then I learned about animal factory farming and everything else paled in comparison. The numbers are just staggering. So for me, it's always a question of what, will reduce the most suffering for the greatest number of sentient beings. And like what I'm hoping is that there isn't a parallel universe because my God, I've got enough to worry about with one planet. Thank you very much. And I'm hoping that factory farming is the worst suffering I'll ever encounter because otherwise we're in really, really deep trouble. So it wasn't so much a question of going from charisma to alternative meat so much as going from one disaster to another, looking for the greatest amount of suffering where it could have the greatest impact. And it's more transition from charisma to genius in the sense that I like, when I was 18, I looked around myself and I said, all right, I got two choices. Either I can exile myself to a desert island or I can learn how to make this whole human thing work. And um, I chose option two for the moment. I'm still keeping the desert island option open, trust me. But so I, I had to learn how to, figure this human thing out. That was charisma. It's the classic, people said it was a black box, kind of learned, I looked at it, took it apart, explained to others, moved on, goodbye. Now it's the same thing for genius. So now we finally know which part of the brain is responsible for all of that. Here's what it is, here's how it works. Have fun, goodbye. Sorry, that was a pretty long-winded way of answering your question. I haven't answered a question at all. And I can try to give you a shorter answer too. No, it's fine. I mean, I, I'd love to hear about, so just to give my listeners some context, you're talking about the genius myth, which is your new book coming out in, I think, a year or two. It's coming out in a, in a while. So help us understand how this all is related, because you're, you're, you're doing so many different things. You've got charisma myth, genius myth, alternative protein. How is it all related? In a sense, the two are separate. Everything that's alternative protein related is, or at least started as my the pro bono side of my life, which usually takes up between one quarter and one third of my time. The genius myth was in a sense, a logical extension of the charisma myth. With charisma, we were looking at a complete black box that people were certain was innate. Magic, you have it, you don't. Turns out, no, it's learned behavior. With genius, same thing. People assume that either you're a genius or you're not. Well, no, it turns out that there is a specific part of your brain. We finally know which part of the human brain is responsible for all human genius, innovation, source of inspiration, what have you. And this is the first time that it will be explained from a practical angle, i.e. most, even most neuroscientists, if you tell them about the default mode network, they wouldn't they'd never have heard of it. Um, the default mode network, this is the part of your brain that's responsible for all genius. Here's the, the absolutely bloody marvelous thing. You can't be born without it. You are literally a genius by default. Mm -hmm. The only difference, well, okay, fine. There's a few more differences between most of us and Einstein, but the main difference really is how good of an access you have to that genius engine inside your brain and how good of a shape it's in and do you know how to get the most out of it? 
But I can promise you that every single human being, if you can walk, talk, and breathe, you've got a genius engine inside your brain. So that's amazing that we all have a little bit of genius inside of us. And once that book comes out, I definitely want you back on the show. Hopefully you're doing interviews again. We were talking offline and Olivia told me this is her last interview for the next two years. So lucky me. Uh, very excited about that opportunity. And Olivia, by the way, I know you're in a very remote location. So your your internet is cutting a little bit in and out. But we're going to be catching a local copy anyway. So I think the interview will be fine. But just know that there's a little bit of a delay. So let's focus this interview on alternative meats and sell ag. And then two years from now, when you got your book out and you're ready to do interviews, I'm going to pick your brain on Genius Smith and you have to promise me you'll come back. So, okay. So let's start with landscape. Let's start with the landscape of the industry. So you've been doing something called alternative protein maps and they've been changing so fast. I've noticed you've put out so many different iterations of them. So talk to us about why you decided to start these protein maps, essentially for my listeners. So you guys have a visual, it's a big poster with lots of different logos and it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So talk to us about how fast this industry is growing and why you decided to put out these maps. So the maps were suggested to me by a really good friend who's the, the founder of um, Moon Express and actually the guy who created Bing and sold it to Microsoft. Absolutely brilliant guy. When we were talking about, all right, did the charisma myth, I now want to give a couple of years entirely pro bono. This is currently the greatest source of suffering. Plus it has the greatest impact on climate change what's the biggest way to impact it? And I was all like, okay, let me focus on policy. I'm going to work with nonprofits. And he, because have I mentioned he is brilliant, told me, hang on, tell me more about that lab-grown meat you showed me on this little piece of paper over there. Because I think that if you're going to have a real measurable impact, it's not going to be through nonprofit or through government action. It's going to be through business. And he suggested the maps as a way to understand the industry. This is 2018. Um, the Game Changers hadn't yet come out. If any of your audience has not seen the James Cameron documentary, The Game Changers, have you been living under a rock? Go watch it. It'll blow your mind. It is now the number one most watched documentary of all time on any platform, you name it. It's brilliant. At that time, when people thought alternative meat, they usually thought, you know, Boca Burgers or something like that. Now, Rather than give you the slow process, I want to tell you where we are now. And you have to realize, Hella, that right now, as in already now, I swear to God, this is already real. We have currently lab-grown or cell-based foie gras, bluefin tuna, wagyu beef, Kobe beef, obviously, um, sturgeon, horse, alpaca, sheep, rabbit, antelope, kangaroo, and I'm missing quite a few of them. All of these meats can be grown molecularly identical to their natural counterparts in clean factory setting. So that's still nothing, believe it or not, because that's just creating meat in a lab, fine. The thing that's really mind blowing is what the air protein people are doing. And what they're doing is they're literally creating food from thin air, or rather they're growing protein in car exhaust. So they're able to take industrial emissions like car exhaust, like direct factory emissions and turn them into Feed, flavoring, amino acids, uh, oil fats, fertilizer, biopolymers, petroleum, and I'm missing them, but a lot of things. So theoretically, you could take an entire city, jettison it into space, and it would be completely self-sustained, which is why we were originally looking at Dubai for the first world space accelerator, and then COVID hit and all of that. But that's what we're looking at. Theoretically, 
There's one company, for example, Kiverti, run by a brilliant woman called Lisa Dyson. They could hypothetically take a scientific magic wand and make entire landfills disappear. So you could take a city-state the size of Dubai, jettison it into space, and it would be completely self-sustained. So that's what alternative protein and essentially cell-based agriculture is today. It's not just orbital farms. It's not just being able to grow meat up aboard the ISS, which is happening, the International Space Station, which is already happening. It's, it's also really a, you can take any country, and if there's enough investment, if the government is willing to invest enough, you could turn any country into the highest producer of food in the world, theoretically speaking. This is like crazy because nobody talks about this, right? Like nobody's talking about this yet. Like you're at this like forefront of this information. It's still getting disseminated. People don't know what's going on. And so I want to understand how many players are in this space right now, right? I know there's plant-based players, there's cell ag players, there's VC people involved. Like how big is this space? How big is the economic opportunity in the industry in general right now? Okay. So if your wonderful tech people can show um, V1.0 of the map and compare it with V2.4, it's going to blow your mind. And you have to realize that's just one year, that's January 2018 versus January 2019. If you look at January 2021, we've now had to move to five maps because, listen, I spent some time at, at Stardex, Stanford's um, Student Enterprise Accelerator. And after a while, um, my co-author Jude and I stopped telling kids to focus on social media and told them, listen, screw social media. You want to be a successful entrepreneur, alternative protein is where it's at because I have never seen, and this is from one who spend a couple of years living at the heart of Silicon Valley, I have never seen so much investment. Back in 2018, especially for every one company looking for funding, there were four to five VCs trying to fund it. So COVID has changed things somewhat. Nonetheless, there's a reason why uh, Bill Gates, Richard Branson, all of the big funders are throwing money at alternative protein. You're right, there's both cell-based and plant-based, big difference. Cell-based, literally, it's molecular, cell-to-cell identical to an animal product. Plant-based, it's, of course, made with plants or fungi. So I want to set some foundation for my listeners. I want to talk about the definition of meat because I think the definition of meat keeps changing. We used to think meat had to be alive. It no longer has to be alive, right? So tell us about your, what is your definition of meat? Well, if you want to take the biblical definition, or you can even take some 14th century definitions, meat has always been literally the meat of the matter, i.e. the heart of something. And the meat of nuts is quite literally mentioned in the Bible. It is mentioned in 14th century recipes, the same way that milk. When uh, Scott Gottlieb, bless his cotton socks, the FDA former commissioner said, an almond can't lactate, guess what? That's not what the people in the Middle Ages thought. Nut milks have been called milks for many, many, many hundreds of years. I think the easiest definition, and I understand that lobbyists will have a problem with this, but for me, meat is center of the plate protein. The thing is, as time goes on, the source is going to become less and less important. I mean, when we're at the point when we're creating whole cuts of chicken out of thin air, and it's molecularly identical, molecule for molecule, to what you would actually get off the back of a cow. The only difference being that animal agriculture creates, what is it, 40% of the total greenhouse gas emissions? 
Whereas, of course, plant-based and cell-based cut that by a factor of quintillions. And so help me visualize what cell agriculture looks like. Because like you said, everything's kind of in a lab right now for the most part. Is it a factory? Is it a farm? Like what does cell ag look like mass produced? Yeah. Um, scale is always the biggest challenge and it will always be. If you're looking specifically at cell ag, cellular agriculture, then it is a factory setting. It looks like a lab now, but it's just going to look like a giant lab slash factory. That's the reason why it is almost guaranteed to be able to undercut animal agriculture in price at some point because animals are insanely inefficient. If you look at everything that you have to put into an animal in order to get one pound of beef, it's actually Winston Churchill who in like the 30s, 1932, I think, said, one day we will find it absolutely insane to grow an entire chicken when all we want is the chicken breast. Well, guess what? In a clean factory setting, not only can you grow the chicken breast, but also, and I'm sorry, this is going to shock some of your listeners, but in most countries in the world, specifically in the U.S., Meat is allowed to have a certain percentage, allowed by the FDA to have a certain percentage of feces and human byproducts, i.e. hair, nails, skin in it, and be sold. So that is, again, legal. You can literally have crap in your meat, and there's a certain percentage of that, and rat poison also, and rats also. That wouldn't happen. So the reason it was originally called clean meat is, of course, it's grown in a sterile environment. Then the meat lobby wasn't too happy about the name clean meat because then, of course, it made people wonder, what do you mean, is normal meat dirty? Well, yes, it is, but they didn't exactly want the focus to be on that. So clean factory setting and think of when you only need to buy one cell, it can be a really, really expensive cell. That's why Kobe beef is, you know, too cheap and too basic now. They're moving on to Wagyu beef, and that's what they're already selling in Singapore. It's on the market. It's now. It's not 10 years from now. A group of teenagers ate it at a restaurant in Singapore a couple weeks ago. That's insane. It's insane that this is already available. And I saw that Singapore is like kind of leading the way in terms of allowing this kind of new meat. Now, it sounds like on the surface, considering how bad regular meat is for the environment and how morally wrong it is, you know, to kill animals and how a lot of people feel that way. But there's still some people who are against this and they feel like ethically it's wrong, spiritually it's wrong. Talk to us about some of the arguments against cell agriculture and maybe, you know, your perspective on that. Right. Let's get started. First of all, GMOs. So I, um, I love my fellow activists and vegans very much, but my God, we've got to wake up on GMOs. Listen, we have been genetically modifying organisms ever since we created the first hybrid. The very first guy who a couple thousand years ago crossed the first wild cherry with the first prune tree was making a genetically modified organism. So let's get that out on the table. There is no such thing as natural. Chickens, and I promise you as someone who raises them, are anything but natural. They're human created. So if you're looking from a quote-unquote natural perspective, first of all, the meat that is produced or the protein, the anything that's produced in those settings is molecule by molecule identical. Now here's a problem. Red meat and white meat are actually genuinely not good for you. The FDA has finally accepted that it's going to be putting a cancer warning label on cheese. You're going to see that come out in the next year or two. Red meat and white meat, it's going to come out at some point. At the moment, we're purely in proof of concept mode. 
So the meat that has to be made has got to be perfectly, completely molecule by molecule identical with all the good stuff and all the bad stuff. In five years, once humanity has woken up and realized that this is possible, then we can remove all the terrible shit from meat. And then you can have meat that's actually genuinely healthy for you in addition to tasting really good. The issue that people have with regards to this is still exploiting animals because this is taking one cell from them, bullshit. Anyone who has ever seen the inside of a factory farm and tells me that it's still wrong to take one cell from an animal when it can save multiple, and I wish I were kidding, but trillions of chickens every year, I would like to slap them up, wake them up and smell the coffee. I mean, it's not just that this could put such a dent in the fight against climate change, because again, 40% of greenhouse gas emissions. It's also because you we've seen with COVID now, the circumstances in which all too often, undocumented immigrants are forced in horrific conditions to work in meat factories. That would be gone. But even beyond that, there's um, in the plant-based world, for example, there are certain algae protein cultivation methods where the crop literally doubles in size every 48 hours. Find me another crop that grows this big. This could genuinely, I'm not kidding, I actually asked the professor who was in charge of this, I said, are you saying that in the right circumstances, theoretically with enough money, blah, 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 this could end world hunger? And he was like, yeah, technically it could. So yeah, sorry, send me the objections again because I'd like to hear them. I heard some objections that it keeps meat on a pedestal because the basis of eating meat is that humans are superior to animals. And because we are basically creating meat, that it just like pushes that further, that that agenda further in terms of that like meat and humans are superior than animals because we're still eating meat. Listen, meat is a status product. If you want to go fight that, good luck. I mean, more power to you. That's a great thing. But I think that if the US, Europe, et cetera, have spent the past couple of centuries uh, promoting meat as the ultimate status symbol, we can't then turn around and say, well, now could the rest of the world please avoid all of that. Meat is gonna be a status symbol whether we like it or not. We might as well supply meat that is less harmful mm -hmm. in every possible way, but we're not gonna erase the demand. So we better make a better supply. Your co-founder, Ira, she once said that agriculture is not a revolution of food, but the logical evolution of food. So why do you think she said that? Why is it an evolution and not a revolution? So Ira and I feel slightly differently about this. Um, Ira's father, Willem van Eelen, is actually the guy who came up with the practical uh, way of creating clean meat. And it's his patents that Josh Tetrick bought um, to create the world's first lab-grown burger in 2013. So Ira is kind of the keeper of the flame. And um, her perspective is that agriculture was, she's in favor. I'm personally against, but then on the other hand, I think that humanity is a plague, a pestilence, and the worst thing to ever have happened to this planet and every other human being on it. Ira likes humans. So you're looking at two co-founders with slightly different views of, um, of how to approach the world. And from her perspective, CELAG is the logical evolution because this finally genuinely makes the most of our scientific knowledge. Agriculture at the moment is one of the most inefficient and frankly, stupid ways we have of creating food. The subsidy issue with farmers being paid really millions to dump milk 
that's just one example because it's so common in the West, where there are people being paid to trash a product that could feed other people who are hungry and the money that is being paid to those people to trash the product could also have, it's crazy. So our agricultural system is profoundly broken. Our farming system is worse. And so, yeah, this is a logical evolution for agriculture. Now, personally, I would prefer if you could just, you know, wave one of those magic wands and get rid of humanity altogether, get rid of the humans, all the problems go away. Unfortunately, I don't yet have a good way to do that. So in the meantime, I'll try to minimize the impact of humans as much as possible. <laughs> I love that. I love how passionate you are. So something I heard you say before is that you think that there's going to be a global protein crisis. And you anticipate that this is going to happen in the future. So why do you think we're going to have a global protein crisis? Like, what do you see coming up? Um, no credit whatsoever to me. The, the data is out. It's well known. We're not ready to feed 9 billion people. And we're especially not ready to feed 9 billion people who each of them think that they need more protein than they actually do. Almost all of us in the developed world consume far more protein than is good for us. And again, watch the game changers. It will bloody well blow your mind. But meat consumption is continuously rising and we're already past any sustainable point for meat. Now, what's really interesting is if you look at some of the most advanced countries in the world, Finland, which has one of the, frankly, most advanced societies in terms of education, healthcare, you name it, they've passed peak meat. Meat consumption in Finland is starting to decrease for the first time. So we can only hope that this will be the case for other Western countries, but in the meantime, China, India, the BRIC country, they're all ready to get their meat now. And again, since the West has been leading the charge on this, we can't exactly say, well, fine, we had a fun time gobbling meat and screwing up the environment, but you can't now because it's too late. So there is a protein crisis. It's here already. And either we find a way to supply the protein in a way that does not finish bringing about complete climate chaos or we're screwed. So let's talk about how much people are eating meat. I'm going to rattle off some stats here. The share of Americans who call themselves vegan or vegetarian has not increased in 20 years. In the 1970s, the typical American ate about 120 pounds of meat each year. In the 1990s, she ate 130 pounds of meat each year. Today, she eats over 140 pounds or 2.5 pounds a week, which is a record high. So Americans at least are eating more meat than ever. Um, let's talk about how we're going to convince people to stop eating meat. I know you're of the perspective that Gen Z is going to lead the way. Why do you believe that is true? Why do you think the younger generation is going to have an easier time eating cell agriculture? Because they're awesome. Um, I'm a big fan of Gen Z. Listen, millennials, I'm very glad you're here. You're lovely. But man, Gen Z, um, they're, they're fabulous. So depending on who you listen to, uh, Gen Z is 1995-ish to 2012-ish. Millennials, depending on who you listen to, it's 1981-2 to 1997. First of all, there, there is a one number that's thrown around. I know how accurate it is, but apparently one American eats as much in a year as 32 Kenyans. Um, the amount of food that America wastes could feed oh several countries. Yes. Yes. So there's a couple of differences. Listen, baby boomers, sorry for anyone who's listening, are spoiled brats. 
And the problem is that they were raised with the mentality of, if you work hard enough, you can and should and will get a perfect life. Millennials, your generation is the, um, the last generation that was raised with still the apparent promise of perfection. You still, if you do the right things, work hard enough, have the right airbrushing, and you too have Kim Kardashian's uh, prep team, can look like the glossy cover of Cosmo. That changed. And I heard a really, really interesting theory that it's because millennials are the kids of boomers. And boomers, again, last generation that was where they had a better standard of living than their parents, right? Whereas Gen Z are the kids of Gen X. And Gen X, the mentality was kind of, the world is screwed. There's nothing we can do about it. And they raised their kids, who now Gen Z are saying, the world is screwed, but thank heavens, they're saying, and there's only us to do something about it. So if you look at the, the trifecta, the holy trifecta for food buyers up until now, it's been price, taste, convenience. That's the three elements. Gen Z has flipped that on its head because all of a sudden price, taste, and convenience have got to compete with ethics, with sustainability. And the number one value for Gen Z, number one above all else, is always transparency. Transparency is not something big food is a huge fan of. And so if you look at the revolution that's happening right now in the food world, everything's changing because of Gen Z. And if you think Gen Z is serious, you should, Gen Alpha, there's kids five years old who are telling their parents at the dinner table, sorry, I don't eat corpses. What's the parent gonna say? That is literally a dead animal on the table. It is a cadaver. The kid says, I'm not a zombie, I don't eat corpses. It's hard to argue against. And Gen Z, what's fabulous about them is that they are so idealism driven, that they can't wait to try products of cellular agriculture because of the dramatic change it's going to have for the people, the planet, the animals. Frankly, most of us aren't trying to convert people to veganism. I'm not vegan. My chickens lay eggs. I eat the eggs. And the percentage of Americans who are vegan are probably not going to grow. That's okay. Impossible Burger and Beyond Meat they weren't focused on vegans. They were focused on meat eaters. That's the revolution. And the reason that big meat is now starting to get as scared as big dairy is, is because the same way that since the 1970s, Americans are drinking one-fourth less milk than they used to, in the same way, plant-based foods have grown by, what was it, 538% during the pandemic? Something insane. So... The quick answer is Gen Z rocks. They care about the planet more than they care about money in many cases. And for the first time, plant-based products are taste close to taste identical with meat products. So when taste is no longer an issue and health is on the side of plant-based, there's very little left aside from price. And um, price is not going to be an advantage the meat industry has much longer. So I know that you also have the perspective that Gen Z and millennials are more open to cell-based meat because they're used to like test tube babies and some of them were test tube babies themselves. And so there's no like weird thing with that. Tell us about that. Yeah. The, the question I usually ask boomers is um, when's the last time you heard anyone use the phrase a test tube baby? And it's been a while because these days IVF is such a normal part of life that it would feel as weird to call an IVF-born kid a fake human 
that is how weird and not that long it will be to call meat grown out of a test tube in a lab fake meat. Most millennials and Gen Zs don't have a problem with life coming out of a lab because many of them and their friends came out of a lab. So when you've grown up with the Avengers, life being born under laboratory experimental conditions isn't that unusual. And for them also, I think the difference is that none of the Gen Z, no Gen Z that I've ever met is under any illusion that we can keep going the way we are. There is not a single Gen Z that I've ever met that says we're doing just fine. Every single one of them knows that it's going to take a drastic change and they're ready for it. So in a way, Gen Z for me is more in common with the greatest generation, the one that fought World War II, than they have with any previous generation because that's the size and scope of the problem they're facing. It's a worldwide problem. Today's episode on Yap is sponsored by Care-of. Care-of helps you find the right vitamins, protein, and collagen personalized for you. In fact, I just took Care-of's online quiz to find out how I can address my specific wellness goals. And it was like getting a one-on-one consultation with a nutritionist without leaving my house. Not to mention it only took about five minutes to complete and the results were returned instantly. Due to the heart disease history in my family, Care-of recommended fish oil. And now that I'm working out more frequently and getting my summer body ready, they also recommended magnesium to support muscle soreness as well as plant protein for muscle building. I can't wait to get my vitamins in the mail. And at Yap, you may know we're all about routines, especially morning routines. And I think my favorite part about Care-of products is that they come in daily individually wrapped packets. Honestly, I think the reason I don't take vitamins every single day is because it's so overwhelming to think about which ones I need to take and when, but now with care of being shipped right to my door in these convenient daily packets, there's really no more excuses. So from now on, I'm taking my vitamins while I'm waiting for my coffee to brew. That is my new morning routine. All of care of products are formulated with good for you, clean ingredients that are backed by science and you'll feel good about using them too, since they're super transparent about the sourcing of their products and they provide compostable vitamins vitamin packs as opposed to the traditional bulky bottles most vitamins come in. Now that's something we can stand behind. For 50% off your first care of order, go to takecareof.com and enter code YAP50. Again, for 50% off your first care of order, go to takecareof.com and enter code YAP50. This is so incredible. I love this discussion. Let's talk about some of the barriers of this industry in terms of scaling, in terms of reaching the the masses. What are some of the obstacles that, you know, these companies are going to face as they try to, you know, mass produce? The, the first and biggest one, let's be honest, is regulation. Activists are usually absolute crap at lobbying. And uh, thankfully, they're finally starting to get their act together. Um, and so now the cell-based world and the plant-based world both have their own lobbying organizations. But the first and biggest barrier is always, 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 always going to be regulation. Second biggest barrier is probably going to be subsidies. But after that, yes, it's size, scale, scope, all of the actual technical challenges. Plant-based is going to be solved so much faster. With plant-based, I can never remember, see Ethan Brown or Pat Brown, one of the Browns, whoever is started Impossible, I think it's Pat, um, he's aiming to undercut the price of conventional meat in less than five years. So he wants 
beyond, sorry, he wants Impossible Burger to be cheaper than the cheapest possible crappiest White Castle slider in under five years. With cell-based, it's going to be a lot longer before it's price parity because it's harder. Um, This is where 3D printing plays an interesting role. 3D printing is really taking off and there's 3D printing of cell-based, but also 3D printing of plant-based. And with 3D printing, I don't know if it'll happen, but if they want to, China has the opportunity to, at a single stroke, reduce their dependency on foreign pork imports, greatly progress towards their climate goals, and become the leader in 3D printed protein all in one go, because no one does cheap manufacturing better than China. So depending on whether the Chinese government wants to get into that or not, they may speed things up. But Otherwise, it depends who you ask, but five to 10 years at least until it is affordable to a well-off consumer in the Western world. That's the current estimation. That being said, it's been moving. Listen, five years ago, no one would ever have thought we'd be making food out of thin air. So who the f- knows, honestly? Let's talk about the, the breadth and scope of this space, because it's not just scientists who need to be working on this. Like what kind of skills does this industry need? What kind of companies are involved aside from just direct to consumer or business to consumer? What's the scope of this industry? It's really fascinating. Now, let me pretend and and talk as if uh, your audience can see the slide. If you look at the industry overview of alternative protein, what you'll see is that it's an astonishingly diverse coalition of stakeholders that's coming together. You've got the governments. China is very into this. Singapore, smartest government. It's really a problem. Singapore government is way too smart for, I was going to say its own good, but no, for our own good. They already are so far ahead that they're already invested in so many of the incubators that are working on this. That can create its own problem for innovation later on, but point being, the smart governments are already onto this. Oh, by the way, as someone who grew up in France, guess which government is the most retrograde, the stupidest, the most backwards? France, of course. The French Minister of Agriculture tweeted saying, you think in France this will be agriculture? Never! And I'm like, Jesus Christ. And this is why France will never be a world player on the world stage again. Like, that's it. You also have big meat. The biggest funders of the... Cell-based ag is actually Tyson, JBS, PHW, because big meat, they're not better people than big dairy. They just have more money or smarter people. And so whereas big dairy is still trying to fight plant-based milk, good luck on that one. Please show your audience the number of different milks we have because people still think there's like a handful. We're up to 34 now, including banana milk, lotus blossom flower milk, pumpkin seed milk, et cetera, et cetera. And by the way, cell-based milk and breast milk, of course. The other really interesting thing is venture capitalists. And this is, I think, what's unusual, celebrity investors. So whether it's ultra high net worth individuals, interestingly and fascinatingly, for some reason, the heirs of family fortunes are really into this. They've got a strong, they tend to have a strong sense of family responsibility. And so you'll find a lot of Successful entrepreneurs, the founder of Twitch, for example, founders of Reddit, you'll get a lot of the actors. And what's really interesting is how genuinely passionate they are. It's really a nice marriage because the startups need the attention. Now the celebrities 
say that they kind of have to be involved in some form of a sustainability something. It's de rigueur, if you will. And of course, the public benefits. Sorry, your question originally was what? I have no idea already. <laughs> it was what kind of jobs are involved in this, like marketing, engineers. It's not just scientists. It's all different kinds of people and, and all different types of companies, right, that need to be involved. Yes. Um, the scientists, it's obvious, but we really need engineers. We badly need people who are experts in automation. So software, hardware, you name it. Uh, we've got plenty of uh, tissue culture engineer, though, by the way, if you want a career where you are guaranteed a job, go for tissue engineering, cellular engineering, all of that. You will be hired before you even get your diploma. It's crazy. Uh, Plant-based is going to make a big difference to the world, and that's fine. That's lovely. Cell-based is going to make an equally big difference to the world, and that's fine. That's lovely. But neither of these can have even the beginning of the impact that the fungi world could have. And the problem is that fungi has a terrible, terrible PR image. In the U.S., I love my fellow Americans, really I do, but when you say the word fungus in American, they usually think tonal fungus, right? Because Americans have no culinary history of mush, well, they have no culinary history whatsoever. Sorry, I'm French. What you have to realize is what we're making with plants and with algae, for example, out of the plants we know is already stunning. We're making silk out of algae. We're making pigments, paint, pharmaceuticals, cosmetic. It's really impressive. But that's one part of the plant kingdom. Fungi are an entire bloody kingdom all to themselves of which we have barely scratched the surface. Fungi can replace a common brick, Jeff, for starters. You can grow tables, chairs, conference uh, room furniture out of mushrooms. Ecovative, for example, ecovative design, they have gorgeous, gorgeous lampshades and everything. Eventually, in not too long, you, you will literally be able to grow your own house out of mushrooms. Talk about an infinitely renewable resource. Like the construction industry is going to be turned on its head. But that's just construction. In food, fungi can solve pretty much anything. All the scaffolding problems that cellular agriculture has, enter fungi. Fungi is what is helping us finally get the exact taste of meat that we need from non-meat plant-based products. The biggest revolution potentially from fungi is going to be in fashion because leather, silk, cashmere, the cashmere was amazing. Every possible textile really that I, that I felt, the leather was just stunning, made from fungi and at a speed and for a price that's going to leave traditional leather like so far behind because you don't need to grow an animal anymore. All you need is basement. And at the same time, fungi is also the most democratically, anyone can start a fungi factory in their cellar. There's ice. Oh, no, he's not seven-year-old anymore. He must be 11 now. Kid in Detroit who started a mushroom farm in his basement and is now employing, I believe, a dozen people and has a, you know, he can't hire fast enough. That's one of the reasons there's so many mushroom kidpreneurs and that's where I see where millennials could really come into play. Gen Z isn't as interested in marketing and PR and the appearance. Listen, if millennials can take over the fungi world, fix the PR problem, you could fix climate change, significantly put a dent in world hunger, cut the negative size of the fashion industry by at least half, revolutionize the construction industry, also solve a lot of big pharma's problems, as well as, let me see, environmental remediation. Oh, and the ocean plastics. So yeah, please take over fungi. We need your help badly. 
It's so crazy. I mean, I've heard you say before that like mushrooms can basically save the world. And it's so crazy to just hear you talk about this. And like I said, I don't, I've never heard about this before you, like it's not really mainstream at all. So where can people learn more about fungi, mushrooms, cell ag? What are the companies that we should know their names of and start to, you know, I guess they're all private now, but once they go public invest in like, where should we go learn more about this? Okay. So first of all, I should have invested in beyond the minute they hit the the market. And honest to goodness, I literally wasn't paying attention that week. And so by the time I realized that, yeah, this was the week they went public, it was too late. Uh, So don't necessarily take any investment advice from me, but what I can tell you is the the companies are making the most extraordinary products. So in fungi, the one that's going to blow your freaking mind is Ecovative. I will... If you send me an email, um, I'll send you all the links to all the companies. You're also going to see them on the maps. Ecovative already makes not just, they, they now have had to split the companies because people are so ignorant of just how much fungi can do that they were, people weren't understanding that the same source fungi could make not just furniture, but also pigments, food, et cetera. So they split into several companies now. So Ecovative is where you're going to find all the furniture you'll want to head to bolt threads for everything that's mycelium leather. Oh, this is the other thing. Oh man, I think it's bolt. So another thing that we can make in the lab is of course ivory. So elephant and rhino horn, for example, right? Vietnamese government, genius idea, just brilliant. So apparently in Vietnam, big problem with illegal um, rhino horn trade because traditional medicine, right? The Vietnamese government, bless them, came up with the idea of buying as much as they could of as soon as it's available, the lab-grown rhino horn and flooding the black market with it. So then once they announce the population, you're welcome to still buy black market rhino horn. It's just you won't be able to know because molecule to molecule, if it was from a real rhino or grown in a lab, there goes a lot of the potency. That's just a brilliant move. And imagine if we can do that with the rhino horns, the elephant tusks, because we can replicate anything. Um, so bolt threads is great to learn about a lot of the ivory, uh, leather. I'm pretty sure they're doing the uh, spider silk and cashmere, lab-grown cashmere. The 3D printed, the best company to look up right now is Nova Meat, N-O-V-A and then meat. They're doing 3D printed plant-based meat. One thing to, I think, that is absolutely stunning is... What you see at South by Southwest when, all right, you know what? Imagine this. 20 years from now, you wake up in the morning, you go down to the uh, breakfast room, you put your index finger, you scan it on the family food 3D printer, and it prints for you, piping hot, the exact breakfast you want, eggs, bacon, everything has been grown right there in your own personal machine. Because by the way, we have consumer-sized meat growing machines already. But also, it will have put every single supplement and medication that you ever need to take. So the DHE, omega-3, 6, 12, whatevers. You need never take another pill in your life again. So hopefully that'll be your breakfast someday. Nova Meat, that's what they're working on. If you want the single most advanced companies in the entire world, that would be Air Protein, literally airprotein.com. They're the ones who are creating chicken out of thin air. And their sister company, Coverdi, is the one that can wave a magic wand and have entire landfills disappear. 
I don't know if it's public yet. So I'm about to say something and um, you're welcome to put it out. I just don't know if the website is available to the public. But the project that uh, we were working on pre-COVID was the world's first space food accelerator. So why was it called the first space food accelerator? Honestly, marketing. I personally don't give a crap about space. Have I mentioned that I'm not a fan of humanity? I don't think we should be spreading it anywhere else. However, NASA is a big fan of spreading humanity all over the place. And as it so happens, cellular agriculture is genuinely made for space because cellag grows anaerobically. So in fact, orbital farms are an even better medium for growing food, as far as cellag is concerned, than the earth. So for me, it was more a question of, great, NASA's into this, all the Big billionaires want to fund space travel into this. I'm into the science that comes out of it. And so this was the world's first space food accelerator. It was going to be based in the UAE. We had an official discriminatory hiring policy in three steps. This is what it was. This is the UAE, right? So step one. Oh, this is for the staff, not for the startups. Step one. Is there a GCC, a, a Gulf uh, Council country woman, qualified and available for the job? Step two. Is there a... Middle Eastern, Mina, Middle Eastern, uh, North Africa, woman qualified and available for the job. Step three, bloody hell, is there any woman qualified and available for the job? Step four, fine, now the men can apply. So as far as the staff went, including the security detail, we were very clear that we were going to hire every single woman we could get our hands on in the UAE, which is one of the reasons that a couple of the, the various Emirates were quite interested in having us come because we were going to hire almost every cell tissue PhD, female, cell tissue PhD engineer they could give us in one go. Young and profiters, they may call me the podcast princess, but I'm also the LinkedIn queen. I've been a LinkedIn influencer for six years now, and I teach one of the most popular courses about LinkedIn. And I love to teach sales on LinkedIn because when it comes to B2B sales, LinkedIn has got that on lock. LinkedIn is where all the decision makers are hanging out. There are 180 million senior level decision makers on LinkedIn and 10 million C-suite decision makers. These people are on LinkedIn and they're in the mode to buy. They're using LinkedIn for their buying journey to research vendors or sales reps that they might work with, to look up how to solve their problems, to learn from industry thought leaders. They're in the mode to buy, whereas on other platforms, they're in the mode to be entertained. You want to get them in the right mindset. You want to cut through the noise with LinkedIn ads. In fact, 79% of B2B marketers rate LinkedIn as their top channel for paid media. And LinkedIn has the best targeting because they've got all these different inputs. People are putting their resume basically up on there. And so there's so many keywords that they can use to target the right decision makers so they can hear about how you solve their problems. And I've got a special gift for all you young and profiters who want to try LinkedIn ads. You can get a $100 credit. LinkedIn was super generous. If you want to make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign, go to linkedin.com slash yap, Y-A-P. Again, if you want to claim your credit, go to linkedin.com slash yap. Terms and conditions apply. I have one more question about meat. I want to talk about crickets because that's the thing that people keep talking about is this like cricket option for meat. What's your perspective on bugs and using bugs for protein? Okay. If you're looking from an ethical standpoint, the problem of course is are, are bugs sentient? 
And I don't want to worry anyone, but crickets have been shown to react to Prozac, which means that they can feel certain emotions that are then impacted by Prozac, which is not a great sign if you want to believe that they're not sentient. But even more than that, listen, bugs aren't going to take off in the West. Um, you can try all you want, but I think it's going to be just like the, um, the digital gap. You know how Africa skipped right over landlines and went straight to cell phones? I don't think we're going to go via bugs. I really do think that it's going to be a straight shot into cell ag because by the time bugs even have the hint of a chance to be accepted as a protein source by then, if Wagyu beef is affordable, why the hell are you going to eat some crickets if you can, you know, get a ribeye steak printed in front of you? All right. So let's skip over to genius myth. Great discussion on meat. Let's talk about the genius myth. So like I said, you came out with the charisma myth back in 2012. It was one of the biggest books out. I think everybody either listened or read that book at some point if you were around in 2012. So what's the, the genius myth? Why did you decide that you needed to write it? And what can people look forward to in terms of the takeaways for that book? Both books are pretty simple. The charisma myth in one sentence Charisma, it's not innate, it can be learned, here's how. Genius myth is pretty much the same thing. Genius, it's, well, genius, it is innate. You do have the capacity and here's how to get the most out of it. In both cases, I like taking things that people say are unexplainable, unteachable, magical, and incomprehensible, and then just taking them apart, figuring out how they work, teaching others how to get the most out of them and then moving on. The charisma myth, this please don't cut out, leave it. And would you please people stop buying the damn book? It is more than 10 years old. It shouldn't still be the Bible in the field. The science has got to be out of date by now. Someone should have written a better book. Uh, that's the reason why I don't give interviews on it anymore because it's 10 years old. So far, apparently no one has written an update, but someone please do. The genius myth is going to be the first time that the brain's genius engine, which is that part of the brain, which we now know is responsible for pretty much all human genius, innovation, inspiration, artistic creation, you name it. We finally know what it is, what it looks like, how it works, well, more or less, um, how you can get the most out of it, how you can screw it up. And so the genius myth is literally that. Here's what genius is inside your brain. Here's how you make it work well. Here's how it doesn't work well. Goodbye. There you go. That's a genius myth. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to pick your brain about that the next time you come on Young and Profiting Podcast once that book is uh, released to the public. So you, this is your last interview for two years. So hopefully, you know, lots and lots of people will listen to this. Is there anything that you want people to know? Like, what is your message to the world? You're not going to do another interview for the next two years. What is your message to the world? Okay, it's totally, totally different. This is probably going to be weird, but cheese is what I want to talk about. The one thing that keeps most people back from going plant-based, and when I say plant-based, it's because that means mainly eating plants. That's why I don't say vegan, which is an ethical stance. But the main thing that keeps them from going plant-based, which is better for them, the environment, the everything you want, is cheese. And that's because traditionally, plant-based cheese is crap. It's genuinely terrible. I mean, it's plastic. That's the thing that has changed the most in the past two years. So if there's one message I could send out the world, it's guess what? 
vegan cheese has arrived. It has, forgive me, matured. And now, thanks to precision fermentation, you are getting cheese that is, and I'm French, so I'm serious about this. You are getting cheese that is stunningly close to actual Brie, Camembert, Saint-Nectaire, Roquefort, you name it. And the most shocking part of this is that you know which nationality of all the people on earth who are the best at this? The country that are the best at making cheese. The British are the best at making plant-based cheese. I do not know what happened. I honestly don't. Maybe they just wanted to embarrass us because God knows the French aren't on the plant-based train either. But if cheese is what's holding you back from adopting a healthier lifestyle, I promise you that that's where you should be looking in terms of food. And actually, if you're looking at investing no, if you're looking at investing, you should be investing in plant-based ice cream. Okay, if you're talking investing, what big dairy should be really worried about isn't plant-based. As said, we've got more than 30 different kinds of plant-based milk. What's really going to put them out of business is microflora. Because with microflora, it's literally dairy molecules just grown without the animals. And the microflora ice creams that are coming out if I remember correctly, when Perfect Day auctioned theirs off, it went for like $1,000 a pint, which obviously is just because it's a novelty. But invest in a microflora-based ice cream company. That's probably where you'll get the fastest return if you're looking at investments. I don't know if that was at all the message you wanted, but yeah, cheese and ice cream. <laughs> you know what? All of this is just so interesting. You've been rattling off so many just interesting facts, things that people don't think about often. So I really appreciate it. I think my listeners are going to really appreciate it. So everything that you said today is valuable. I just want you to understand that. Uh, the last question I ask all my guests is what is your secret to profiting in life? And this doesn't have to be financial. It can be, you know, personal. Like what is your secret to profiting in life? And you are a very successful woman. You have, like I said, one of the biggest authors of our generation. What's your secret? I got a lot done early on and burnt out because of it. I think I had my first burnout having the experience of, you know, having more money than I knew what to do with, more time, more everything you want at 25. And the advantage of that is that once you burn out at 25, a lot of the things that people spend time chasing hold less appeal for you. If there's one thing that has made my life measurably better in the past couple of decades. It really, really, really has been getting comfortable with who I am. Now, granted, I may have gone a bit too far in that direction, since now I really don't give a f And that's a problem of not having anything to prove anymore. But had I but known when I was in high school just how much easier and better my life had been if I did not care what other people thought, that it was, in fact, the best way to have, before I got married, I had a harem. And if I had only known that the best way to get your own personal harem is simply not care what boys thought about you, and then they'd all fall at your feet. And same for business in many ways. So self-acceptance, I think, really is it. And don't get me wrong, self-acceptance is tough work, especially for those of us who are more comfortable in our heads. You're going to have to meditate at some point. Sorry. And for those of us who are more mind-oriented, we tend to gravitate towards Vipassana, nice, dry, cognitive work of the mind, insight meditation. But you have to think of meditation as a toolbox. And the same way you wouldn't use a screwdriver or a hammer for the same thing, you shouldn't use Vipassana or Metta for the same purpose. 
people like you, like me, all the overachievers, we don't need more intellectual insight. What we need is the messy, awkward, uncomfortable work of the heart. And uh, metta, N-E-T-T-A, loving kindness meditation. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. Metta's a bitch. I hate metta. It's awful. It's bloody awful. But that is what got me the biggest and fastest transformations personally. If you look at the person I was pre my first meta retreat and post different human being, and I'm going to horribly paraphrase, I think it was Thoreau who said, I could feel my soul growing like corn in the night and by God, it was painful. My first Vipassana meditation uh, retreat, seven days, seven days of silence. No, it's not actually silent. There's way too much talking on a meditation retreat. Trust me about this. But the seven days of stillness, silence, and solitude, really not that much of a problem. Seven days of metta, I wasn't sure I was going to survive because that is work I wasn't ready for. I was going to say, what, what was that retreat? Say that slower and, and explain to us what this retreat was. So I went on my first meditation retreat when I was 22 or 23, I think. And listen, it was a life-changing experience. There aren't that many things of which I would say this will change your life. I promise you that a seven-day meditation retreat will. Even if it's billed as a silent meditation retreat, usually there's at least two periods per day of times the teacher when there's Q&As. So for me, it was far too noisy. And it might be a silent meditation retreat, but you're surrounded with like at least 30 people. So there's lots of humans. A real silent retreat, let me put it this way. My teacher was a Rabbi David Cooper, who wrote God is a Verb, was a Jewish rabbi who taught Buddhist meditation in a Catholic convent, and he doesn't believe in God, didn't believe in God. What he asked for for his 60th birthday is called a dark retreat. So a dark retreat is when you are alone in a cell with not light, not sound, no human contact, nothing. Your food is delivered by a special chute so that not one photon of light or sound will come through. And so he said, it's really interesting because after a couple of days with nothing for stimuli, your brain starts to hallucinate. So you start walking through fields of gold and uh, you, you get some really intense experiences. And so I asked him all instant, so how long did you spend in there? And I was assuming he'd say like, I don't know, a couple of days. And he was like, oh, I don't know, a couple of weeks, not more, much more than a month. He was without light or sound. Yeah, that's what a real silent retreat is. Metta retreats, M-E-T-T-A, loving kindness. So it's one of the different forms of meditation. I'm going to piss off so many people, but sorry. I really do see meditation as a toolbox. So TM, for example, transcendental meditation, it's really useful to help you concentrate. It'll get you to jhana one, the first stage of concentration meditation, faster than any other form I know. However, that's all it'll get you. You're not gonna get the same kind of blinding insights you get from Vipassana. And I don't think you're gonna get the kind of, my God, I don't know if I'm gonna survive this, but it is incredible healing that you'll get from metta. Decide what you want to get out of it and then go after it. If you want a schizophrenic episode, then go ahead, jump into Zen meditation and see how you like it. If you're going for emotional trauma healing, that's metta, but my God, be ready. Because as said, when you're in a metta meditation retreat, it's kind of like your brain goes, oh, we're in a safe zone now. We want to do healing? Excellent. Let's release all the trauma we didn't know we had. And so, so often on metta retreats, you'll get people who are hit by 
things that happened in their path that they had repressed and their brain's like, sweet, safe space, wee! It's tough. It's really tough. But meta retreats, Vipassana retreats, transcendental meditation, Zen, don't do Zen. Then you've got all the meditation in motion. And that can be really, really helpful for people. Five rhythms, also known as barefoot boogie, also known as dance in motion. That's a form of meditation that is just as valid as any other. And personally, I'm a dancer by family, by blood, by whatever you want. So I've always danced my way out of trauma. That's how I do it. Stop thinking of meditation as a spiritual path and start thinking of it as a mental and physical health toolkit. And you'll get so much more out of it. And you'll actually get meditation for what it actually is. So I'm going to ask the last question. Where can our listeners go to learn more about you and everything that you do? Well, they can go to my website, but I'm not going to be spending a lot of time on there. Um, LinkedIn, honestly, is it's the one and only social media outlet on which I'm ever active at all. And anything that I do in the Saving the World arena is going to be there. Actually, that's where, you know what, LinkedIn. Um, and my LinkedIn profile is linkedin.com slash IN and just the three letters OFC. That's it. And uh, resources for learning more about the future of food and how to save the planet, kindearth.tech. That's the event side of the, the company I guess I put together. Newprotein.org is where you're going to find all the maps, but I think it'll be easy if I just send your tech people all of them. Uh, you can put them on your website or anything. We made them to be used. But I'm not the best resource. John Kabat-Zinn, wherever you, wherever you go, there you are. Don't even read the whole book. Just read the introduction and maybe chapter one. You will already know more and have a better understanding of meditation than 99% of people on this planet. For the food world, the Good Food Institute, that really is the prime resource for how to save the world by food. The celebrity stuff just isn't public yet. Whatever's public is going to be on LinkedIn. I think those are the best resources I can give you. Don't get the audio. I do not know why, because she's an amazing person on audio, but the audio version of this book will make you want to shoot yourself. Get the actual paper version of a book called Radical Acceptance by Tara Brack. Have you ever met a guy called Tim Ferriss? Yes. Okay. Tim is not necessarily an easy guy to convince. And as he said himself on his podcast, everyone tells him this book will change your life. And so he, so he usually doesn't. This one, A, he read it. I was quite forceful about it. And B, he then had Tara Brack on his podcast because guess what? It did change his life. This is one of the few books that will probably change the life of anyone who reads it if they can make it through. It's not an easy one. It's going to ask you to look at some pretty tough stuff. But once you know that you can handle pretty much anything that happens inside of you, and that's another thing why meditation retreats are fabulous, by the way, there's not much that your average business life can throw at you that's going to scare you. Meditation retreats as fabulous training for handling any intensity that can happen inside your own. That's it. Meditation is kind of like a jungle gym for your mind. And meditation retreats are like boot camps for your mind, yourself, your psyche. You come back from a meditation retreat, you're going to be a whole lot harder to rattle. Thank you so much, Olivia, for joining Young and Profiting Podcast. It was absolutely a pleasure. And as soon as I'm doing interviews again, I promise I will be happy to. Thank you for listening to Young and Profiting Podcast. 
I hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Olivia. She is such a bright and unique mind, and I personally find the alternative protein and cellular agriculture space to be so fascinating and full of opportunity. I hope this industry spotlight was eye-opening for you too. The future of food and meat the way Olivia describes it almost seems unbelievable. But let's remember that associations and perceptions of food can change quickly. Our grandparents and great-grandparents used to eat whale in their school dinners back in the day. And now nobody thinks of whale when it comes to eating meat. So things can change. And not to mention diet soda used to be associated with health. And now everyone knows it's quite the opposite. So when you consider these things, a world where we only eat lab-grown meat doesn't really seem that far-fetched after all. And plus, we have so much on the line, morally and when it comes to our planet and the environment, that that should help guide the world to make the smartest decisions about what we eat and how we source it. Olivia's work reminds me of an episode we recorded way back when, number 22, Becoming Astronomically Ambitious with billionaire CEO Naveen Jain. In that episode, he talked about solving some of the world's biggest problems on Earth by looking into space exploration. Let's hear a clip from that episode. I want to talk about the concept of going to the moon. Why go to the moon or why do the space exploration when there are so many problems on planet Earth? What people don't realize is these are not mutually exclusive. First of all, anytime you have a choice of going to the space or solving a problem on planet Earth, that choice should be to do both. We can explore space and we can solve the planet on Earth. And by the way, we can explore space to solve the problem on planet Earth. Mm -hmm. Let's take an example of energy. Today, we believe the energy can only be produced by the resources that we have on planet Earth. What if we can bring helium-3, which is an isotope of helium? What if we can bring the helium-3 from moon or other places on space to planet Earth, and it can be used as a completely non-radioactive, clean energy source for fusion energy. Again, if you love learning about what's in store for the future, check out our Yap Classic episode number 22, Becoming Astronomically Ambitious with Naveen Jain. If you're a new listener, it would mean the world to us at Young and Profiting Podcast if you could drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcast reviews are the most impactful reviews for podcasters. Why? Because it directly affects all of our podcast rankings, and it's the number one way to support our show. If you don't have access to Apple Podcasts, like you have an Android or something, try borrowing someone's iPhone and write us a review. Don't forget to include your name and location so I can properly shout you out. And speaking of which, I want to shout out a reviewer on Apple Podcasts, La 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 349. Great podcast. So many good things to say about Young and Profiting. Hala's in-depth research and sharp questions for guests rival that of James Lipton on Inside the Actor's Studio. Her warmth and enthusiasm make for an environment where guests feel comfortable sharing deep parts of their lives. Everything you want out of your time, TV talk show hosting must be next on her list. If you want thought-provoking content, great guests, and life lessons, look no further. Wow, la la la, that is probably one of the best reviews I've ever gotten. I appreciate you taking the time to leave us feedback and giving me that amazing compliment comparing me to James Lipton. I am so honored that you see that in me. And TV show hosting, I would love to do that. And I agree, I see that in my future as well. 
Thank you so much again. And for everybody out there listening, please take the time to write us an Apple podcast review. At Yap, we really don't ask much from our listeners. Nothing is ever on Patreon. We never ask you guys to pay. We never ask for donations. I'm even on Clubhouse coaching, social media, and podcasting every single day for free. We just love to serve our listeners. And so that's why if you find value in Yap, if you listen to Yap, please write us an Apple podcast review. It would mean the world to me. And guys, the other thing that I love to see lately, and I've been seeing it a lot more often, is people taking screenshots of them listening to Yap and then tagging me in their stories on Instagram at Yap with Hala. I'm getting way more active on Instagram. My following is growing there every single day. And so if you post that to stories, I'm going to repost whoever supports me. So go ahead, take a screenshot of you listening, tag me at Yap with Hala, and I promise I will reshare it on my stories. And I'm also on LinkedIn. Of course, you can find me at Hala. Taha and also Clubhouse. I host Clubhouse events every single day. Follow me at Hala Taha. Big thanks to the Gap team as always. This is Hala signing off.